is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Mark Levin here, our number 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Last night, I eviscerated the American media and the Democrat Party, and I pointed out in excruciating detail and comprehensively how both were defending our enemies, how both stood up for Hamas, the regime in Iran, the regime in North Korea, the regime in Cuba. And there's new information to report today, and I'll get there in a moment. But did you notice all the hosts today? I can't listen to them. I get information from you, my beloved audience. Repeated exactly what I said last night. That's why this program is the cleanup show. That's why it's important. We have the guts to say what nobody will say until I say it. I'm not patting myself on the head. I don't understand quite frankly, the problem with these backbenchers. But the fact of the matter is, our media have blood on their hands because of the way they give aid and comfort to terrorists, to police states, to communist regimes, to fascists, and trash our country and trash our allies and trash the state of Israel. But again, I'll circle back because right now, There's a story in the New York Slimes, the Holocaust-denying New York Slimes, today. And it was put out mid-afternoon. And the New York Slimes doesn't realize what it did here, as none of the media entities realized what they did over a year ago uh, when I pointed out the espionage that had been taking place in this country, you may recall. So I want to get back to this. This article today, listen to this. This is the headline. Codename Crossfire Hurricane. The secret origins of the Trump investigation. Within hours of opening an investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia in the summer of 2016, the FBI dispatched a pair of agents to London on a mission so secretive that all but a handful of officials were kept in the dark. Let's stop right there. Donald Trump, his campaign, was under investigation by the Obama administration, by Jim Comey, by the FBI, by Loretta Lynch's Department of Justice. That's how the tree works. Starting in the summer of 2016. Did you hear what I said? His campaign's ties to Russia. Their assignment, which has not been previously reported, New York Slimes is very impressed with the fact that they are recipient of leaks, was to meet the Australian ambassador, who had evidence that one of Donald Trump's advisors knew in advance about Russian election meddling. And what was that evidence, by the way? After tense deliberations between Washington and Canberra, top Australian officials broke with diplomatic protocol and allowed the ambassador, Alexander Downer, 
to sit for an FBI interview to describe his meeting with the campaign advisor, George Papadopoulos. Now, that's kind of old, but what's new is that the ambassador of Australia met with the FBI, broke with diplomatic protocol. Well, who gave him approval to do that? And you're going to tell me that the President of the United States wasn't aware of this? Barack Obama? Let's go on. The agents summarized their highly unusual interview and sent word to Washington on August 2, 2016, two days after the investigation was opened. The report helped provide the foundation for a case that a year ago Thursday became the special counsel investigation. But at the time, a small group of FBI officials knew it by the codename Crossfire Hurricane. So the coup attempt started before the general election. But they were in place should Donald Trump get elected. That's my interpretation of this. See, they give Hillary Clinton the all clear, despite her serial violations, knowingly, knowingly of the Espionage Act. And they unleash against Donald Trump just in case he's elected president of the United States. They're ready with their coup attempt. So we have a presidential candidate who's under federal FBI investigation, his campaign that is, with nothing but George Papadopoulos. The name, a reference to the Rolling Stones lyric, I was born in a crossfire hurricane, was an apt prediction of a political storm that continues to tear shingles off the bureau. Days after they closed their investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. Notice they don't talk about of her violations potentially of the Espionage Act. You see, Donald Trump's campaign is ties to the Russian collusions. Hillary Clinton, well, private email server. Agents began scrutinizing the campaign of a Republican rival. The two cases have become inextricably linked in one of the most consequential periods in the history of the FBI. Can you imagine the FBI conducting a secret investigation of any Democratic presidential candidate? The investigation of Hillary Clinton wasn't secret. It was known. Her violations were known. We talked about it on the air. But here was a secret investigation. This month, the Justice Department Inspector General's office is expected to release the finding of its lengthy review of the FBI's conduct in the Clinton case. The results are certain to renew debate over decisions by the FBI director at the time, James Comey, to publicly chastise Mrs. Clinton in a news conference and then announce the reopening of the investigation days before the election. Mrs. Clinton has said those actions buried her presidential hope. No, no, no. She said that. She said America hates women. You know, stuff like that. But that's not all the inspector general is supposed to do, by the way. This month, the Justice Department inspector general as we said, is expected to make his release. Now, those decisions stand in contrast to the FBI's handling of crossfire hurricane. Not only did agents in that case fall back to their typical policy of silence, but interviews with a dozen current and former government officials, Comey, and a review of documents show that the FBI was even more circumspect in that case than has been previously known. Many of the officials spoke on condition of anonymity, because they were not authorized to discuss the investigation publicly. In other words, they're leaking. They're committing felonies. 
Agents considered then rejected interviewing key Trump associates, which might have sped up the investigation but risked revealing the existence of the case. Top officials quickly became convinced that they would not solve the case before Election Day, which made them only more hesitant to act. When agents did take bold investigative steps, like interviewing the ambassador, they were shrouded in secrecy. I don't think the New York Times comprehends that it is condemning the Obama administration, the Lynch Justice Department, and the Comey FBI for its Soviet-like surveillance and investigative tactics of a candidate and his campaign. Fearful of leaks, they kept details from, not clearly not now they're not, they kept details from political appointees across the street at the Justice Department. Peter Stroke, a senior FBI agent, explained in a text that Justice Department officials would find it too tasty to resist sharing. I'm not worried about our side, he wrote. Oh, so the leaker Stroke was worried about leaks. That's pretty funny. Only about five Justice Department officials knew the full scope of the case, officials said. Not the dozen or more who might normally be briefed on a major national security case. So let us be clear. We have a secret cabal of FBI agents who on the flimsiest of information, flimsiest of information, begin investigating a presidential candidate in his campaign. Tell me, when it was revealed that Barack Obama had ties to domestic terrorists, did the FBI conduct a secret investigation? Did it? Of course not. Remember, I'm reading from the New York Slime, so you have to understand the spin, the dishonesty, the omission of information. But still, look what they've revealed. Look what they've revealed in the aggregate. A secret, small cabal of FBI agents using the flimsiest of pretexts to invest a a, a presidential campaign. Not the Hillary Clinton situation. Not the Hillary Clinton situation, which was quite public about her violations of the Espionage Act, what she did as Secretary. No. Papadopoulos. No, this, this is... Well, let's go on. The facts, the New York Slimes write, had they surfaced, might have devastated the Trump campaign. Mr. Trump's future national security advisor was under investigation. As was his campaign chairman. You get this? One advisor appeared to have Russian intelligence contacts. Another was suspected of being a Russian agent himself. There it is. New York Times just flopping this crap out there. And yet it is utterly consistent with what I talked about back in March 2017. That something smelled rotten. Based on the stories, including from the New York Times. And you have to ask yourself, why is the New York Times running this now? Why didn't get the information or report the information a year ago? I'll get into that in a minute. In the Clinton case, Mr. Comey said he erred on the side of transparency. But in the face of questions from Congress about the Trump campaign, the FBI declined to tip its hand. And when the New York Times tried to assess the state of the investigation in October 2016, law enforcement officials cautioned against drawing any conclusions, resulting in a story that significantly played down the case. They're trying to show you they did all they could to protect the Trump campaign. That's a lie, of course. They, they were conducting a 
a secret cabal was conducting an investigation, a FBI investigation of the Trump campaign with no serious pretext. We'll continue this when I return. Mark Lovin. Ladies and gentlemen, a cabal within the FBI of a handful of agents, five or less, who took it upon themselves to investigate the Trump campaign starting in August of 2016 based on the flimsiest of pretexts, a discussion between George Papadopoulos and the ambassador to Australia. At least that's the position being peddled by the New York Times. I suspect there's a lot more than that to this. They clear the decks for Hillary, despite her serial felonies, under the Espionage Act, and then immediately genuflect and go after Trump with this secret cabal of FBI agents. That's what the New York Times has revealed tonight, whether or not they realize it. Incredible. Crossfire Hurricane. They even gave themselves a name. Crossfire Hurricane. Let's continue. Mr. Comey has said it's unfair to compare the Clinton case, which was winding down in the summer of 2016, with the Russia case, which was in its earliest stages. He said he did not make political considerations about who would benefit from each decision. Of course, Comey is a, a serial liar and a buffoon. But under my, underpinning both cases was one political calculation. That Mrs. Clinton would win and Mr. Trump would lose. How many times have I told you that the reason that Barack Obama and his ilk in the administration did not reveal to Congress or anybody else that the Russians were interfering with our election? The reason why Susan Rice, in August of 2016, told the cybersecurity group within the White House to stand down, even though they were telling her about Russian interference in the campaign, and they dare not provide options in a memo to the President of the United States to box him in is because they thought Hillary would win and they did not want her election tainted. It all panning out. Agents feared being seen as withholding information are going too easy on her. And they worried that any overt actions against Mr. Trump's campaign would only reinforce his claims that the election was being rigged against him. Guess what? The election was being rigged against him by the Obama administration, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies. See this fool Brennan running around? A complete sicko. And if I have time today and I may not, I'm going to get to him too. The head of the CIA, the head of national intelligence, the head of the FBI, the head of the Justice Department. All colluding to stop Trump. Just in case he might win, they wanted to make sure they dirtied him up pretty good. That argument is the heart of Mr. Trump's grievances with the federal investigation in the face of bipartisan support for the special counsel. Mr. Trump and his allies have made a priority of questioning how the investigation was conducted in late 2016 and trying to discredit it. See, ladies and gentlemen, if you dare to challenge these police state tactics... 
You are an ally who is simply trying to dirty up the FBI. The FBI, which the left and the Democrats have hated since their very existence. Congressional Republicans, led by Representative Devin Nunes, have begun to dig into FBI files. See, what this is, is a leak in advance of discovery. That is, a leak in advance of the intrepid Devin Nunes finding this information out on his home. To try and take the edge off of it. Don't allow them to take the edge off of it. They set up this cabal, crossfire hurricane. A handful of rogue FBI agents. That's what I said, that's correct. A handful of rogue FBI agents. Crossfire hurricane began exactly 100 days before the presidential election. This is the New York Slimes. But if agents were eager to investigate Mr. Trump's campaign, now, now you see the New York Times will use a news story to come to their defense. So you have a preemptive leak here because Nunes and others will get to the bottom of this one day. Maybe soon. And so they're putting out the information in advance. All right, I have to take it. This is a hard break. We'll continue now. I'm making it possible for tomorrow's backbenchers to do this article. Trust me. But you're here first. So we'll continue when I return. This is stunning, and I'm unraveling it for you, not just by reading the article, but telling you why the New York Times is doing this, because... It's clear that this cabal of FBI agents acting secretly, acting secretly within the FBI to take down the Trump presidency, should he be elected, is leaking to the New York Times to spin the story. The New York Times is also trying to provide cover, trying to position these agents as careful, not wanting to interfere with the election while they're conducting covert activities against the campaign. And what you need to get out of this is that there was a small cabal of FBI agents who apparently took it upon themselves, gave themselves a code name, Crossfire Hurricane, under the thinnest of pretexts to investigate the Trump campaign and these so-called Russian connections. I think there's a ton more here. We only have scratched the surface. And the reason this story is coming out this evening is because it was going to come out eventually, if not soon. And this cabal wanted to put the best spin on it. Where else do you go? To the Holocaust-denying New York Times to get the spin that you want. To the Hamas-supporting New York Times. And so we're learning an enormous amount here. You just need to read the story the right way. Listen to this language from the story. The FBI now faces those very criticisms and more. Mr. Trump says he's the victim. So in other words, this, this group was trying to be as careful as possible, you see. As fair as possible. And yet they're still being criticized over there at the FBI. So this is the spin. The FBI now faces, the Times right, those very criticisms and more. Mr. Trump says he's the victim of a politicized FBI. So senior agents tried to rig the election by... Declining to prosecute Mrs. Clinton. I think that's quite obvious. Then drummed up the Russia investigation to undermine his presidency. That's quite obvious. 
He has declared that a deeply rooted cabal, including his own appointees, is working against him. Well, there was and is a deeply rooted cabal. The New York Times just revealed that fact, knowing full well that fact was about to be revealed by somebody somewhere. I think this cabal of agents is worried about texts and emails and potential witnesses. And the fact that a special counsel has not been appointed to investigate the FBI, the Department of Justice, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Clapper, Mr. Comey, Ms. Lynch, Mr. McCabe, and all the rest of the cabal is amazing to me. Congressional Republicans, led by Representative Devin Nunes, have begun to dig into FBI files looking for evidence that could undermine the investigation. See that? So Nunes trying to uncover this cabal, which the New York Times did for him in order to protect it, now turns the guns on Nunes. It's okay if a handful of FBI agents are investigating Trump and the Trump campaign right after his nomination, but it's not okay when a duly elected member of the House of Representatives, chairman of, a, of the Intelligence Committee in the House, is trying to figure out what the hell took place. Now he's interfering with the cabal, you see. Much remains unknown and classified. But those who saw the investigation up close of the Kabbalah's leaking to the New York Times, and many of those who have reviewed case files in the past year, say that far from gunning for Mr. Trump, the FBI could actually have done more in the final months of 2016 to scrutinize his campaign Russia ties. And there is the, the special pleading New York Times trying to protect the cabal. Look, they could have really hurt him. They could have really hurt him, but they didn't. I never saw anything that resembled a witch hunt. Quoting, I never saw anything that resembled a witch hunt or suggested that the Bureau's approach to the investigation was politically driven, said Mary McCourty, 20-year Justice Department veteran and top national security prosecutor during much of the investigation's first nine months. Why is she confirming this leak? Doesn't that expose her? Moreover, who gives a damn what she has to say? Who the hell is she? I don't know about her politics. That's like saying Mueller. You know, Mueller was a Marine and he's a Republican. Well, screw him. I'm not passing judgment on the fact that he's a Marine or registered Republican. It's a lot of registered Republicans I despise. What the hell does that have to do with anything? Let's continue. This is important because I came here today to discuss further the Hamas supporting, the Cuba supporting, the North Korea supporting media, as we so comprehensively exposed them last evening. But I need to deal with this first. Crossfire Hurricane. Crossfire Hurricane began exactly 100 days before the presidential election. Now you know that these are the agents leaking because only they knew exactly when it started. But if the agents were eager to investigate, Mr. Trump's campaign, as president, has suggested. The messages do not <laughs> reveal it. I cannot believe we're seriously looking at these allegations and the pervasive connections, Mr. Stroke wrote soon after returning from London. <clears throat> so now we have self-serving leaks of emails and texts. The mood in early meetings was anxious. You see the spin? Former officials recalled... Agents had just closed the Clinton investigation. They braced for months of Republican-led hearings over why she was not charged. 
Crossfire Hurricane was built around the same core of agents and analysts who had investigated Mrs. Clinton. That's what damns them. Don't you get it? New York Times, that's what damns them. The agents that gave Hillary a pass then went after Trump. None was eager to reenter presidential politics, former officials said, especially when agents do not know what would come of the Australian information. The question they confronted still persists. Was anyone in the Trump campaign tied to Russian efforts to undermine the election? Now, let me get this straight. This cabal of agents undertakes this investigation of the Trump campaign and its ties to Russia. And yet, the question they confronted still persists. Was anyone in the Trump campaign tied to Russian efforts to undermine the election? So the question still persists. And yet, that's the question upon which they launched their cabal. The FBI investigated four unidentified Trump campaign aides in those early months. Congressional investigations revealed in February. See, Nunes is on their trail. That's why this was leaked this evening. The four men were Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, and Papadopoulos. Karen and former officials said... Each was scrutinized because of his obvious or suspected Russian ties. Michael Flynn's obvious or suspected Russian ties. Paul Manafort had ties to the Ukrainians. Carter Page was subjected to a FISA investigation. He had been charged with squat. And nobody ever heard of Papadopoulos. Mr. Flynn, here we go. A top advisor was paid $45,000 by the Russian government's media arm for a 2015 speech. And dined at the arm of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. So what? So what? We have people on Russian TV, left and right, including Adam Schiff. We have the Clinton Foundation receiving millions of dollars from people with ties to Cl- uh, uh, Putin and the Russians. Does this have to do anything? Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, had lobbied for pro-Russian interests in Ukraine and worked with an associate who has been identified as having connections to Russian intelligence. Worked with an associate who had connections to Russian intelligence. What does that mean? doesn't mean anything. Mr. Page, a former foreign policy advisor, policy advisor, was well known to the FBI. He'd previously been recruited by Russian spies. It was suspected of meeting one in Moscow during the campaign. Well, did you charge him with anything? Did he? Even got a FISA warrant based on the dossier. This is the New York Times sliming up everybody. Not the agents, not the cabal. Lastly, there was Papadopoulos, the young and inexperienced campaign aide whose wine-fueled conversation, meaning he was drunk, with the Australian ambassador set off the investigation. We don't know that to be true, but that is the spin the FBI has leaked to the New York Times, which the New York Times is pressing to you. Before hacked Democratic emails appeared online, he had seemed to know that Russia had political dirt on Mrs. Clinton. But Russia didn't have political dirt on Mrs. Clinton. But even if the FBI had wanted to read his emails or intercept his calls, that evidence was not enough to allow it. You got that? That's stuck deep into the article. They didn't have any evidence on Papadopoulos to take any of his info. In other words, to get a warrant. Many months passed, former officials said, before the FBI uncovered emails linking Papadopoulos to a Russian intelligence operation. 
They've only charged the guy with a false statement so far. They haven't charged him with espionage or anything else. Mr. Trump was not under investigation, but his actions perplexed the agents. Days after the stolen Democratic emails became public, he called on Russia to uncover more. Then news broke that Mr. Trump's campaign had pushed to change the Republican platform stance on Ukraine in ways favorable to Russia. Turns out, even I was critical of that, turns out that's not accurate. The FBI's thinking crystallized by mid-August. After the CIA director at the time, John Brennan, shared intelligence with Mr. Comey, showing that the Russian government was behind an attack on the 2016 presidential election. Intelligence agencies began collaborating to investigate that operation. The Crossfire Hurricane team was part of that group, but largely operated independently, three officials said. Look at this. Incredible. And Brennan has his fingerprints all over it, which makes sense, doesn't it? He was the CIA director. How many CIA directors voted for a communist for president? He was a radical leftist, plucked from obscurity by Obama to head the CIA. What did the CIA under Mr. Brennan do to stop the Russians from interfering in our election? Barack Obama did almost nothing to stop the Russians from interfering in our election. Do you understand this administration, the Obama administration, was responsible for stopping, preventing, confronting the Russians, and they did almost nothing! except investigate the Republican nominee for President of the United States. Because of some guy named Papadopoulos, who was drunk, who spoke to the Australian ambassador. This is all a setup. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, said that after studying the investigation, as the member of the, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee saw no evidence of political motivation in the opening of the investigation. Well, I guess we should all forget it then. There was a growing body of evidence that a foreign government was attempting to interfere in both the process and the debate surrounding our elections. And their job is to investigate counterintelligence. That's what they did. No, Marco, that's not what they did. The application for FISA did not present all the information to the FISA court. Susan Rice put the brakes on cybersecurity in the White House confronting the Russians. Your own committee wasn't told about it till late in October. Why are you a cover-up artist for what's taking place here, Marco Rubio? I would like to get to the bottom of this in the worst way. Why are you giving a pass to this cabal, to what took place here? I speak as somebody who worked at the Justice Department, Marco. You've never worked at the Justice Department. All they were doing was a counterintelligence investigation, Mark. Looking back, some inside the FBI and Justice Department say that Mr. Comey should have seen the political storm and better sheltered the Bureau. They question why he consolidated the Clinton and Trump investigations at headquarters rather than in a field office. Is this a joke? We know why he did that. He was protecting Hillary and going after Trump. And they say he should not have relied on the same team for both cases. That put a bullseye on the heart of the FBI. Any misstep in either investigation made both cases and the entire Bureau vulnerable to criticism. This cabal has a hell of a voice in the New York Times, doesn't it? And there were missteps. Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, was cited for internal by internal investigators for dishonesty about his conversations with reporters about Mrs. Clinton. There's another guy Rubio came to the defense of. McCabe. 
well, I'm not sure he should be fired, you know, with his pension like this. I don't think that's appropriate. Oh, nice. That gave ammunition for Mr. Trump's claims that the FBI cannot be uh, trusted. What does Mr. Trump have to do with this, ladies and gentlemen? He had no idea he was being investigated. This is August. He didn't do anything. They keep throwing these one-liners into their article, and yet Trump happens to be right. And Mr. Stroke and Lisa Page, an FBI lawyer, exchanged texts criticizing Mr. Trump, allowing the president to point to evidence of bias when they became public. Oh, so the problem isn't the actual bias. The problem is Trump mentioning the actual bias. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Continue this into the second hour. I hope you'll stay with me. And I'm going to move on to some other things. But I definitely want to finish with this. Because in front of us right now, the cabal is being revealed. When you put aside the New York Times spin and, and their special pleading and so forth and so on, what the New York Times has established in a preemptive leak to the New York Times is that there, was a, there were a handful of FBI agents as part of a cabal who on their own started an investigation of the Trump campaign, hoping to find dirt on Donald Trump and his campaign. All the talk about them being cautious and not wanting to interfere with the campaign, the fact of their existence tells you otherwise. The pretext being that Papadopoulos, really a nobody in the campaign, was drunk or almost drunk, said something to the Australian ambassador that suggested to the Australian ambassador that he knew that the Russians were trying to interfere with the campaign and help Donald Trump. Despite all the congressional testimony and all the investigative activities of the FBI, Justice Department lawyers, and so forth and so on, they have found no such thing. And so this is a preemptive leak because this information was coming out one way or another, and these Agents, this cabal, were worried about it. Now more in the next hour, but let me, let me tell you that more than one million children became victims of identity theft in 2017. And families paid $540 million out of pocket to cover the cost of the fraud. Kids' identities are all, all worth tons on the black market. Thieves open accounts. Parents don't find out for years. Often when they apply for financial aid for college, it's a terrible, terrible thing be happening to your kids right now with school and medical records now digitized and even young kids routinely online the risk is growing bigger and faster than ever but you know what you actually don't need to worry because you can protect your family right now with my id care the premier the premier production my id care covers you for the nine types of identity theft including child id theft with great family plans, and they provide 100% identity recovery guarantee or your money back. That's the difference between my ID care and all the rest of them. You need top-tier identity recovery, and they stand by it with their guarantee. You and your kids need protection, and you need my ID care. Learn more and get 15% off at myidcare.com slash mark, promo code mark. Myidcare.com slash mark, promo code mark. One more time. MyIDCare.com slash Mark, promo code Mark. We will continue 
to interpret what the New York Times is reporting and what the New York Times has actually done, which has revealed the cabal in the FBI. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811, as we blaze our trail. Clear the path for everybody here. So the New York Times, for those of you who are just joining us, has revealed, didn't mean to reveal, but has revealed in fact this evening in a long article that there was a cabal within the FBI, a very small number, less than five, up to five, uh, that in many ways did not report to or through the usual channels as it undertook upon itself to investigate the Trump campaign immediately after the Hillary Clinton campaign was closed. And the pretext they use is that George Papadopoulos, really a nobody in the Trump campaign, who'd had a little too much wine, according to the New York Times, in other words, was drunk, had spoken to the Australian ambassador. You have to wonder how those two linked up. And the Australian ambassador allegedly took from the conversation that he knew about Russian interference with the campaign, presumably to assist the Trump campaign. Now, you can have some slob standing there and say whatever he wants to say. But for a cabal of FBI agents, five or less, to use that as a basis to unleash a secret, I said a secret, counterintelligence, investigation of the Trump campaign is way beyond the pale. Way beyond the pale. And they gave themselves a name, ladies and gentlemen. A code name, Crossfire Hurricane. Now when these these cabals give themselves names, you know they're totally out of control. And the New York Times is writing this as it is spoon-fed information from this cabal, apparently. Because I'm convinced that Devin Nunes, among others, is hot on their tail. That is, of this cabal. Because his name shows up out of nothing, for no reason at all. And they basically condemn him and Trump for condemning what the FBI is doing to Trump. So you see, it's Trump's fault. And they're very concerned, you see, about the possible connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Not between the Hillary Clinton campaign through Fusion GPS and Russia. Not the Bill and Hillary Clinton library and foundation in Russia. No, no, no. And, of course, Brennan's name is in here because I believe Brennan was an invisible hand using the system against the Trump campaign, among others. But I'm going to continue where I left off, because I can't repeat the first hour. You can, however, listen to it, 
30 minutes or so after the end of this program, we post it on Mark Levin Show Facebook, our official radio website. Counterintelligence investigations, writes the New York Times, can take years. But if the Russian government had influence over the Trump campaign, the FBI wanted to know quickly. One option was the most direct, interview the campaign officials about their Russian contacts. That was discussed but not acted on, two former officials said, because interviewing witnesses or subpoenaing documents might thrust the investigation into public view. Exactly what FBI officials are trying to avoid during the heat of the presidential campaign. So you can tell the cabal or members, or a member, but likely several members, sat down with this New York Times reporter, fed the information, and then they worked out how to reveal it. You do not take actions that will unnecessarily impact an election, Sally Yates, the former Deputy Attorney General, said in an interview. She would not discuss details, but added, folks were very careful to make sure that actions that were being taken in connection with that investigation did not become public. Okay, now we have a major contradiction in the New York Times piece. It said that there was a handful of FBI agents who didn't really report to the usual channels or through the usual channels. And here you have Sally Yates, the former Obama Deputy Attorney General of the United States, who knew about it says she would not discuss detail. So here we are, well into this long article in the middle of it, where it contradicts the front end of the article. They tried to keep political appointees out of it, they said. And yet Sally Yates is a Class A political appointee by Barack Melhouse Benito Obama. They go on. Mr. Comey was briefed regularly on the Russian investigation, but one official said those briefings focused mostly on hacking election interference. The Crossfire Hurricane team, the cabal, did not present many crucial decisions for Comey to make. So, again, the article is internally contradictory. The cabal did tell Comey at least about their investigation, even if it withheld information even from Comey. So here you have rogue FBI agents. I'll put the proper label on it, rogue FBI agents. But because they were going after Trump world, perfectly pined by the New York Times. The Holocaust-denying New York Times. Top officials became convinced that there was almost no chance they would answer the question of collusion before Election Day, and that made agents even more cautious. Isn't that convenient? The FBI obtained phone records and other documents using national security letters, a secret type of subpoena, officials said. And at least one government informant met several times with Mr. Page and Mr. Papadopoulos, current informers, officials said. That has become a politically contentious point with Mr. Trump's allies questioning whether the FBI was spying on the Trump campaign or trying to entrap campaign officials. Hold on, hit the brakes. The FBI obtained phone records and other documents using national security letters, a secret type of subpoena. A secret type of subpoena. And at least one government informant met several times with Mr. Page and Mr. Papadopoulos, current and former officials said. So there was, in fact, a government informant who met with Mr. Page and Mr. Papadopoulos. There was, in fact, a spy. 
Looking back, some at the Justice Department and FBI now believe that agents could have been more aggressive. Now, this is the spin to try and show us that these agents were very careful, very professional, used good judgment. These are rogue agents. Rogue agents within the FBI. They ultimately interviewed Mr. Papadopoulos in January 27 and managed to keep it secret, suggesting they could have done so much earlier. There's always a high degree of caution before taking over its steps in a counterintelligence investigation, said Ms. McCord, who would not discuss details of the case. Who the hell is Ms. McCord? And that could have worked to the president's benefit there. Oh, oh, that's the former prosecutor of national security prosecutor. Such tactical decisions are reflected in one of Mr. Stroke's most controversial texts sent on August 15, 2016, after a meeting with McCabe's office. I want to believe the path you threw out for consideration in Andy's office, that there's no way he gets elected. But I'm afraid we can't take that risk. I like an insurance policy in the unlikely event you die before you're 40. Mr. Trump says, look at the New York Times. Mr. Trump says that message revealed a secret FBI plan to respond to his election. We'll go to phase two and we'll get this guy out of office, he told the Wall Street Journal. This is the FBI we're talking about. That is treason. But officials have told the inspector general something quite different. They said Ms. Page and others advocated a slower circumspect pace, especially because polls predicted Mr. Trump's defeat. They said that anything the FBI did publicly would only give fodder to Mr. Trump's claims on the campaign trail and the election rate. Look how they're spinning this. So the insurance policy was intended to protect Mr. Trump. Oh, now I get it. Mr. Strzok countered that even if Mr. Trump's chances of victory were low, like dying before 40, the stakes were too high to justify inaction. Mr. Stroke had similarly argued for a more aggressive path during the Clinton investigation, according to four current and former officials. He opposed the Justice Department's decision to offer Mrs. Clinton's lawyer's immunity and negotiate access to her hard drives, the officials said. Mr. Stroke favored using search warrants or subpoenas instead. In both cases, his argument lost. So you can see they're protecting Stroke here. His argument lost to whom? Who overrode his arguments? Was it Mr. Comey? I mean, there weren't many people above Mr. Stroke. Mr. Stroke was reporting to McCabe and Comey. So who overruled his arguments? New York Times doesn't tell us yet. The FBI bureaucracy did agents no favors. Now they're protecting the cabal of the rogue agents. In July, a retired British spy named Christopher Steele approached a friend in the FBI overseas, provided reports linking Trump campaign officials to Russia, but the documents meandered around the FBI organizational chart, former officials said. Only in mid-September, congressional investigators say, did the records reach the Crossfire Hurricane team. Well, how would Mr. Steele even know to give it to the Crossfire Hurricane team if they were a secret cabal? I'm just asking. But you see, it meandered around the FBI. Actually meandered around the CIA, too. It meandered around the National Intelligence Office, too, ladies and gentlemen. It was meandering in John McCain's office, all over the place. Meandering among reporters. Mr. Steele was gathering information about Mr. Trump as a private investigator for Fusion GBS, a firm paid by Democrats. But he was also considered highly credible, having helped agents unravel complicated cases. In October, agents flew to Europe to interview him, but Mr. Steele had become frustrated by the FBI's slow response. 
He began sharing his findings in September and October with journalists at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, and elsewhere, according to congressional testimony. So as agents tried to corroborate Mr. Steele's information, reporters began calling the Bureau, asking about his findings. If the FBI was working against Mr. Trump, as he asserts, this was an opportunity to push embarrassing information into the news media shortly before the election. So here again, the New York Times goes off the rails. The dossier was pushed into the news media. But they say that did not happen. Most news organizations did not publish Mr. Steele's report. Just listen to how this is written. Agents tried to corroborate Mr. Steele's information. Reporters began calling the Bureau, asking about his findings. The FBI was working against Mr. Trump, as he asserts. This was an opportunity to push embarrassing information to the news media shortly before the election. That did not happen. Most organizations did not publish Mr. Steele's reports or reveal the FBI's interest in them until after the election. Ladies and gentlemen... Now you can understand why in March 2017, when I was starting to put this together, obviously I didn't have all of this, but I had basic outlines from leaks, must be from the rogue cabal and others, into the New York Times and other places. The idea that the Bureau wasn't trying to hurt Trump is a lie, a damnable lie. Many Democrats see rueful irony in this moment. Mr. Comey, after all, broke with policy and twice publicly discussed the Clinton investigation. Now, this is the second or third time the New York Times has done this. Yet he refused repeated requests to discuss the Trump investigation. Because the Trump investigation was a secret effort to destroy Donald Trump. The Hillary investigation was an open effort to announce that she was clean even though she should have been indicted as the Democrat nominee for President of the United States. So that is my answer to the New York Times as they continue to repeat this phony comparison. The result, though, is that Mr. Comey broke with both policy and tradition in Mrs. Clinton's case to protect her. That's the irony, to protect her. She didn't lose because of this. She lost because she stinks. But hewed closely to the rules for Mr. Trump. This is the fourth time the New York Times has used this line. So they go to Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intel Committee, said that alone proves Mr. Trump's claims of unfairness to be both deeply at odds with the facts and damaging to our democracy. Am I boring everyone, Mr. Producer? I think this is crucially important. We're almost done. I think I have to finish this. I'll be right back. Mark in. Apart from the New York Times editorial comments that have slipped throughout in its spin, this is a scandal the likes of which this nation has never seen. This nation has never seen anything like this. The cover-up by the media, this nation has never seen anything like this. The obstruction by the Democrats, this nation has never seen anything like this. The New York Times, we're near the end. Crossfire Hurricane, that's the self-identification by the handful of FBI rogue agents, the cabal. Crossfire Hurricane began with a focus on four campaign officials. 
by mid-fall 2016, mid-fall 2016, ladies and gentlemen, presumably October, right before the election, Mr. Carter Page's inquiry had progressed the furthest. Agents had known Mr. Page for years. Russian spies tried to recruit him in 2013. Well, did they? Apparently not. They said tried. And he was dismissive when agents warned him about it. A half dozen current and former officials said, that warning even made its way back to Russian intelligence, leaving agents suspecting that Mr. Page had reported their efforts to Moscow. Look at the weasel language that the agents suspected. Well, did he? You had a tap on his phone. You were listening in on his conversations. Relying on FBI information and Mr. Steele's, prosecutors obtained court approval to eavesdrop on Mr. Page, who was no longer with the Trump campaign. Look again. Relying on FBI information and Mr. Steele's. They put a tiny little footnote in the application. In the the FICE application. with With an indication so ambiguous. On how it was funded. That there was no way a federal judge would have had any idea the Democrats in the Hillary Clinton campaign were involved. And yet the New York Times, weaselly as it is, has to note. Relying on FBI information and Mr. Steele's information. Remember, the cabal was doing their own investigation. Steele was doing his own investigation. The cabal didn't have the Steele information earlier in the article until September. Yet they used that information to get the warrant. Prosecutors obtained court approval to eavesdrop Mr. Page, who is no longer with the Trump campaign. That warrant has become deeply contentious. And it's crucial to Republican arguments that intelligence agencies improperly use Democratic research. Look at how the New York Times reports this, as if they are the head of the Democrat Party. Ms. Yates. Now, Ms. Yates is discredited. Ms. Yates wanted to use the Logan Act against Lieutenant General Mike Flynn. And yet they keep referring to her, a left-wing political hack of the highest order in the Obama administration. Ms. Yates, the Deputy Attorney General under President Barack Obama. Finally, they mention it at the end of the article. Sign the first warrant application. There it is. The first time, the first time to my knowledge revealed that Sally Yates, the left-wing political Deputy Attorney General of the United States to Barack Obama, who wanted to use the Logan Act against Lieutenant General Flynn, signed the first warrant. For the FISA application. Maybe it's been out there. It's the first time I've heard it. We'll be right back. Trust me when I tell you, these columnists and talk show hosts are taking notes from me. They don't know how to analyze this stuff. Their background and experience is not the same as mine. I can catch this stuff. Ms. Yates, the Deputy Attorney General, the Obama holdover, was behind leading the attack on Mike Flynn and pushing the Logan Act argument, which was a phony argument. She was eventually fired by the president because she undermined his position on immigration. She also received a complimentary and supportive email by the number two, who would wind up being the number two investigator on the Mueller team, this clown Andrew Weissman. He gave her a a high five, if you will, for trying to obstruct the president of the United States' immigration policies. She ultimately failed. You can see how incestuous this is. 
real bunch of circle jerks. If I mean, uh, what am I trying to say? Jerks who are in a circle. Let me put it that way. Ms. Yates, the deputy attorney general under Obama, signed the first warrant application. But don't worry, the New York Times says subsequent filings were approved by members of Mr. Trump's own administration. The acting attorney general, Dana J. Bonte, and then Rod J. Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general. And this is why Trump's furious. They're out of control. Now, before I go on and bring this to a close. You know, my listener was in deep with back taxes to the IRS, roughly 15 grand and he couldn't pay. Just a matter of time until they garnished his wages and seized his bank accounts. Umpteen times. He'd heard me mention Optima Tax Relief and how Optima knows that behind every tax problem are good people with families, homes, savings, and paychecks that need protection. And umpteen times he started to call and then he stopped. Finally, he did, and it was the best call he'd ever made. The tax experts at Optima qualified him for the Fresh Start Initiative, a special IRS program that saved him thousands and put his tax debt to rest. Optima has resolved over half a billion dollars in tax debt for their clients, and they're A-plus rated with the Better Business Bureau. When you're ready to put your IRS crisis behind you, one call can start the process to solve it all. Call my trusted friends, the experts, the pros at Optima Tax Relief. Here's the special number, 800-499-6300, 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Let's continue. We're learning a lot. We're learning a lot. The New York Times hopes you're missing every piece of it as it spins and spins and positions and positions. But you're not. You're catching everything. You're with me and I'm with you. After months of investigation, Mr. Papadopoulos remained largely a puzzle. And agents were nearly ready to close their investigation in Mr. Flynn, according to three current and former officials. Then they have a parenthetical, a parenthesis. Mr. Flynn rekindled the FBI's interest in November 2016 by signing an op-ed article that appeared to be written on behalf of the Turkish government and then making phone calls to the Russian ambassador that December. Why would writing a piece on behalf of the Turkish government, which I despise, rekindle investigative activities? Or making phone calls to the Russian ambassador when you're the incoming National Security Council advisor? See, this is, again, the thinnest of reads, a complete phony pretext. But let's go on. In late October, late October, ladies and gentlemen, would be about a week before the general election. In late October... In response to questions from the Times, law enforcement officials acknowledged the investigation, but urged restraint. They said they had scrutinized some of Mr. Trump's advisors, but had found no proof of any involvement with Russian hacking. The resulting article on October 31 reflected the caution. Oh, the wonderful rogue cabal of agents, very cautious and said that agents had uncovered no conclusive or direct link between Mr. Trump and the Russian government. The key fact of the article, that the FBI had opened a broad investigation of possible links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, was published in the 10th paragraph. In the 10th paragraph. Of the New York Times. There's a New York Times reporting about the New York Times. 
And year, a year and a half later, no public evidence has surfaced connecting Mr. Trump's advisors to the hacking or linking Mr. Trump himself to the Russian government's disruptive efforts, all the way near the end of the article. But the article's tone and headline, investigating Donald Trump, FBI sees no clear link to Russia, gave an air of finality to an investigation that was just beginning. You see, Trump won, ladies and gentlemen. The investigative processes were already in place. The hypothesis, if you will, had already been presented. They just needed to find something. Like good little Soviets. They just needed to find something, anything. They'd worked so hard, this cabal, starting in August. They'd leaked so much. They couldn't let it go. They had their man. They just don't know what they had him for. Democrats say that article preemptively exonerated Mr. Trump, dousing chances to raise questions about the campaign's Russia ties before the election. See, the Democrats are all about politics, using all this against Trump. Just as the FBI has been criticized for its handling of the Trump investigation, so too has the New York Times. I don't know what, I don't even understand this point. Hillary Clinton paid for the dossier. The DNC paid for the dossier. The dossier came in different phases, but the, 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 the essential content of the dossier was known months before the general election. That's why Hillary Clinton started to squawk when she lost. Hey, Russia collusion, Russia collusion, Russia collusion. Did you ever wonder why or how she knew about that? Well, there wasn't any. But she had to know about the dossier. Has she ever been interviewed by that? Has any committee of Congress ever had her testify about her role? Not one. Any committee of Congress ever have Debbie Wasserman Schultz or Donna Brazile testify? Not once. Not once. And Mr. Steele, it dashed his confidence in American law enforcement. Well, that's very upsetting. He didn't know what was happening inside the FBI. Glenn R. Simpson, the founder of Fusion GPS, testified this year. And there was a concern that the FBI was being manipulated for political ends by the Trump people. The FBI is being manipulated for political ends by the Trump people? Which Trump people at the FBI? Can you name one? So again, this is the New York Times... Spinning, positioning, managing a disaster. Two weeks before Mr. Trump's inauguration, senior American intelligence official briefed him at Trump Tower Manhattan on Russian hacking and deception. They reported that Mr. Putin had tried to sow chaos in the election, undermine Mrs. Clinton, and ultimately help Mr. Trump win. How did he do that? Through the dossier? How did he help Mr. Trump win? And if he was helping Mr. Trump win, why did Barack Obama sit on his hands until late October? Why did Susan Rice sit on her hands? Why did they all sit on their hands? Because they expected Hillary to win. And they did not believe that the Russian interference would help Trump win. If they thought Russian interference would help Trump win, they would have been jumping up and down in August about it. They would have been making public pronouncements about it. They would have been calling out his campaign and Papadopoulos and all the rest of them. But they didn't. Because he wasn't trying to help Trump. He was trying to interfere with the campaign. And thanks to the Obama administration, he succeeded. Not in helping Trump or defeating Hillary, but interfering in the campaign. 
Not a word of that in this long New York Times piece, because it's a long piece with really only about 10 sentences that matter. Mr. Comey met with Mr. Trump privately, revealing the Steele reports and warning that no, he didn't reveal the Steele reports. He revealed a very limited amount in one Steele report and warning that journalists had obtained them. Yes, Mr. many people think Mr. Clapper leaked it to, the, to CNN, for which he was later rewarded with a job and money, money. Mr. Comey has said he feared making this conversation a J. Edgar Hoover type situation with the FBI presenting embarrassing information to Lord over a president-elect. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I called it on day one. Comey did what he did, and he did it the way he did it, so he would be able to, in his mind, blackmail the president of the United States. In a contemporaneous memo, in other words, a self-serving memo, Mr. Comey wrote that he assured Mr. Trump the FBI intended to protect him on this point. I said media like CNN had them and were looking for a news hook. Mr. Comey wrote in Mr. Steele's documents. I said it was important that we not give them the excuse to write that the FBI had the material. And yet that's exactly what they did because of Mr. Clapper. Clapper, Brennan, Comey, Yates. Yikes. Mr. Trump was not convinced. You know why? Because he's not an idiot. He saw something was wrong. Imagine this. You're an outsider. You're now the president-elect. All this is being dumped on you. Mr. Trump was not convinced either by the Russia briefing or by Mr. Comey's assurances. He made up his mind before Mr. Comey even walked in the door. Hours earlier, Mr. Trump told the Times that stories about Russian election interference were being pushed by his adversaries to distract from his victory. Right, because why didn't they push it earlier? Because they wanted to protect Mr. Trump in the campaign. Don't you understand, ladies and gentlemen? That's the end of the article. I hope you've been with me from the beginning. I'm almost speechless. I'm almost speechless. Just to recap, before I go to the break, a handful of FBI agents decided to investigate the Trump campaign initially keeping their activities quiet from virtually every other unit within the FBI. It was a secretive cabal of FBI agents, five or less. They wanted everybody kept in the dark. Because, they say, in the New York Times and their leaks, George Papadopoulos, who was apparently drunk, had said something or some things to the Australian ambassador suggesting that Papadopoulos knew of Russian interference in the election. They assumed that was intended to help Trump since he was a Trump supporter. And that, this cabal of agents, went to London, went to other parts of the country as they were investigating the Republican campaign. Having cleared the Hillary Clinton campaign, the same group, they then immediately turned to the Trump campaign based on nothing. They gave themselves a code name, Crossfire Hurricane. 
crossfire hurricane. They wanted to conduct their investigation under the radar. And yet later we know that they informed Mr. Comey of major parts of what they were doing, but withheld some information according to the New York Times, which means according to these leakers. And they're very upset they didn't do more at the time to expose Trump. But we don't know what they mean. Expose him to what? They were behind, in part, the FISA application. They had targeted Michael Flynn because he was paid $45,000 to give a speech to the Russian government, a media arm of the Russian government in 2015. And he actually dined at the arm of the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Ladies and gentlemen, that's no basis for investigating Flynn in any respect. They point out Manafort. That he lobbied for pro-Russia interests in Ukraine and worked with an associate who's been identified as having connections to the Russian intelligence. And yet we're told in the FISA applications, Manafort's not one of the ones who were targeted. If he did all these things, why wasn't he? Mr. Carter Page. Mr. Page, you're the fall guy. You're the straw man through which this cabal was operating. But you didn't know it. Even though the New York Times smears him further, there's no evidence whatsoever that Mr. Page worked with Russian intelligence. In fact, the weasel words the New York Times used suggested he didn't. But they used Mr. Page and they used the dossier, among other things, for the warrant at the FISA court. This cabal of FBI agents came up with almost nothing independently that would justify a probable cause counterintelligence warrant so they concealed information. John Brennan, the former CIA director, shared intelligence with Comey, showing that Russia government was behind an attack on the 2016 presidential election. And the intelligence agencies began collaborating to investigate the operation. And we know they leak like hell. And this secret cabal was part of the group that was involved operating independently, of course. And yet, Susan Rice knew about it in August and told the cybersecurity team at the White House to stand down. Marco Rubio, by the way, sees nothing wrong with this, and they emphasize this in the New York Times. Hey, what's the problem? No evidence of political motivation in opening that investigation. Marco, you need glasses. But you keep at it. Then it turns out that they were, in fact, informing Comey in some respects, informing others at the Justice Department in some respects. We also learn that Sally Yates, the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, who tried to push the phony Logan Act in order to destroy Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, was the one who signed the FISA application. Highly political, radical leftists who Obama put in office. I'll be right back. Lovin. According to Rudy Giuliani, two weeks ago, Mueller told him that they would not indict the President of the United States. 
because of Department of Justice policy, which he would adhere to. Now, I have told you for almost a year, June of 2017, on this program, I have told you on Fox, that while all these other lawyers, some professors, some former prosecutors, and on and on and all are in the weeds, I discovered those two Department of Justice memos. 1973 and 2000. Which explicitly said in significant detail that it was the position of the Department of Justice that a sitting president of the United States cannot be indicted under our constitutional construct. I'm going to talk more about this in the next hour as well as close the circle on what's taking place with Hamas and Israel and the American media especially. If you shower, brush your teeth, or try to make your hair look presentable, here's some good news. Dollar Shave Club has a lot of stuff to help you out. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, everything. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top-shelf ingredients that won't break your budget, and you'll feel the difference. Plus, shipping is free with your membership. Here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just 5 bucks. you can get their Daily Essentials Starter Kit. It comes with wonderful cleanser. It comes with a famous shea butter. comes with the best razor, six-blade executive. And you can keep the blades coming every month for a few bucks. It's dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Well, ladies and gentlemen... I hope Rudy Giuliani's uh, recollection about his meeting with Mr. Mueller's team is accurate. The headline at CNN and also Fox and elsewhere, but it gives me great joy to read it from CNN. Giuliani, Mueller's team told Trump's lawyers they can't indict a president. Special counsel Robert Mueller's team has informed President Donald Trump's attorneys that they have concluded they cannot indict a sitting president, according to the president's lawyer. All they get to do is write a report, Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani told CNN. They can't indict. At least they acknowledge that to us. After some battling, they acknowledge that to us. That conclusion is likely based on longstanding Justice Department guidelines, says CNN. It's not about any assessment of the evidence Mueller's team has compiled. A lack of an indictment. Now, now listen to how the media go here. They're saying, oh, my God. Oh, God. What, what are we going to do? With Wait, we're not done. A lack of an indictment would not necessarily mean the president's in the clear. Mueller could issue a report making referrals or recommendations to the House of Representatives. Ladies and gentlemen, I think this is why you listen to this show when you can do a thousand other things. Sports, piddle around at home, whatever. I think this is why you listen to this show. And I think this is why you hear the shows the next day regurgitate what I'm explaining here. And if I don't point it out, nobody will. 
go to June 19, 2017, on this radio program, and go to June 20, 2017, on Hannity's Fox show. I pulled out those documents that I dug and dug and dug and find, because that's what I do. I think about this sort of stuff all the time. I'm not out, you know, gallivanting, doing this, doing that, tooting around on a boat, and whatever. No, this is what I do. Mark, what do you do for fun? This is what I do. And I've told you from day one, this is all about impeachment. That Mueller's all about impeachment. And that he's serving the interests of the Democrat Party. While certain renegade Republicans want to protect him, even though he's destroying our constitutional system and the results of the last election. I've spent two hours breaking down that New York Times article and the cabal against this president. It is shocking. Shocking. It's a centipede of shoes that keep dropping here. And while Dershowitz and the others, this one and that one, are, well, he can plead the fifth, he can do this, he, there's nothing he can do in response to the subpoena, I said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not correct. You cannot indict a sitting president. Whatever my personal opinion it is irrelevant. You cannot indict a sitting president. That is the official position, according to the Department of Justice. I've said it on the air. Mr. Mueller's people hear me. I've waved it in their faces on TV. You cannot indict a sitting president, according to the United States Department of Justice, for which Mr. Mueller works. And as a condition of his employment and his appointment. He must comply with Department of Justice policy. Department of Justice policy, to the best of my knowledge, has never been altered. Not since the first opinion in the Nixon administration and the second opinion in the Clinton administration. It's never been altered. Each of those memorandum one built upon the other. They are conclusive. And the idea that Mr. Mueller would go to court indicting a president of the United States when the president's lawyers would go all the way to the Supreme Court and wave around those documents to those justices would have been preposterous. Doesn't mean he still won't do it out of spite, but I am telling you, that if he follows the rules of the Department of Justice, and if they're enforced by the Attorney General of the United States, he cannot indict this president or any president. Now, when they leave office, it's a different issue. I've explained this till I'm blue in the face. That this has always been about impeachment. It has to be about impeachment. It doesn't mean this rogue prosecutor won't try and indict anyway. And that Trump and his lawyers will have to fight in district court and appellate court and the Supreme Court unless they can go directly to the Supreme Court. I put nothing past Mueller and his rogue Democrat prosecutors. But what I'm saying and what I said on Hannity, what I've said behind this microphone, what I've said on Levin TV is the Constitution is this president's best friend. Wrap yourself in it. Defend it. Defend the office of the presidency. And the fact that this Republican Congress sits there 
and doesn't call Mr. Mueller before it, any of these Judiciary committee, uh, Committees, and insists that he explain under what authority he seeks to subpoena a president and set him up for indictment. The fact that they've never asked Mr. Mueller his opinion of these memoranda is a shameful lack of faith to our constitutional system by a Republican Congress that sits there, that lies there like a bunch of flounder on the beach. Yes. From the eavesdropping in March of 2017 to the insistence of people that they can indict this president for obstruction, we've been right. And we've been first. Because we think about these things. We study these things. We educate ourselves about these things. CNN says, The inability to indict a sitting president has been the position of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department since the Nixon administration, reaffirmed in the Clinton administration, but has never been tested in court. I've said this over and over again, but tested in court. How would it be tested in court? You indict a sitting president? And then his lawyers go into court and say, Your Honor, he's acting ultra-virus. That is, without authority. He can't come in here as a special counsel and overturn his own department's policy. It had been an open question, CNN writes, whether if investigators found potentially criminal evidence against Trump, Mueller's team would try to challenge those Justice Department guidelines. CNN reached out to Mueller's team. They declined to comment. How can you challenge the Department of Justice guidelines? You're an employee of the Department of Justice. You don't have standing to challenge your department's guidelines. Listen to me. He has no standing to challenge those guidelines. None. He must follow the guidelines. As a condition of his appointment, CNN... The Justice Department memos going back to before Nixon say you cannot indict a sitting president, you have to impeach him. Now, there was a little time in which there was some dispute about that, but they acknowledged to us orally that they understand that they can't violate the Department of Justice rules, Giuliani said. Why do they understand that? Because I've been pounding it and pounding it and pounding away at this. Did you watch my Fox TV show on Sunday? Two ago, when I had DeGeneva... And Bongino on the program, and I pulled those memoranda out yet again and read from them, and we put it on the screen. I said to my wife, I have got to keep pushing this. I've got to get it out. I've got to keep making this case on all the platforms I have, radio, TV, digital TV. As a guest, I've got to keep making the case, making the case. These lawyers, this conga line of lawyers, this one from this school and this one with this background, they're making the wrong arguments. They're making the wrong arguments. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. A very, very happy direction, in my view. There's a wonderful book out now, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire, 
by Brett Baer. And you've heard me talk about Brett Baer, one of the last journalists standing, as far as I'm concerned. Man doesn't have an agenda other than to try and figure out what's going on and communicate it to us. And I'm very hard on journalists because they're very hard on us. But Brett Baer is really superb. And I read his book early on, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. Even though he focuses on these three crucial days and expands upon it as the, really the, the, the beginning of the fall of the Soviet Empire, it's really a magnificent biography on the life of Ronald Reagan. Brett Baer, how are you, my friend? Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. You must be exhausted. But let me tell you. <laughs> It's almost harder promoting the book than writing it, isn't it? You know that well. Yeah, it's it's it is. It's a lot of fun though, and I, I'm really proud of it. And it's getting a good response. And um, thank you for your kind words and and your blurb. It it really helped uh, promote the book early on. Well, I'm I'm shocked that people weren't shocked that I blurbed it and said, oh, oh that guy blurbed his book. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's really a fascinating book, and particularly your focus, as the title says, in the three days in Moscow. What caused you to focus on that and write this book? So it's kind of based on the same format uh, of my last book, Three Days in January, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission. And that looked at Eisenhower's last three days before Kennedy's inauguration and the farewell address, and then used the kind of nuggets and, and information of those three days and bounce back and look at Eisenhower's life and how he arrives at that moment, which was that farewell address was overlooked. This address that Reagan delivers in the heart of communist Moscow in front of Moscow State University students, where if you go to Google and you just look on YouTube and you can watch the speech, it's, it'll give you goosebumps because it could be read, read and delivered today. He is not hammering them over the head that we're better than you. He's like the Pied Piper uh, talking about freedom and uh, freedom of speech and religion and travel and why the West is the way they should turn. That speech was largely overlooked at the time, and I use the details of those three days of the final summit between Reagan and Gorbachev and bounce back and show how Reagan, through his life, gets to that moment. And really, it's a seminal moment, because soon thereafter, the wall falls down and the Soviet Union collapses. What was it about that speech? And I have watched it, and I have read it, and it is a phenomenal speech. But what, to you, what was it about that speech that was so compelling? First of all, here is a guy who, uh, for his entire career, Reagan was talking about how communism was not going to make it, how he truly believed in his gut that it was ethically bankrupt and morally bankrupt and eventually would be bankrupt. Uh, and here he is talking to students the future of you know, the communist regime. And, and then taking questions in a Q&A after the speech with them. Um, I tried desperately to find somebody, one of those students in the audience, uh, mm -hmm. and, and to get perceptions of, of how that moved things. I had anecdotal information from Russia, but I had a lot of interviews and, and people who were there, George Schultz and others, who described the moment as um, just a culmination of Reagan's efforts. You remember there was Geneva, Reykjavik, Washington, and then Moscow. And uh, he, he stood strong and took them, these students, with him uh, to why the U.S. was the right, right way to turn. Why do you think they let him give this speech? You know, uh, Gorbachev had been 
kind of bombarded every time they got together. Uh, Reagan wanted to talk about human rights and about freedoms. And it was almost a concession that he could talk to these young kids. But in retrospect, you wonder, was that a mistake from the Soviet perspective? Um, because these were the, this was the future. And the questions that they were asking, it wasn't vetted. It wasn't given three by five cards and this is what you're going to be asked. They were impromptu. This was a, a president who some people said at that time was fighting Alzheimer's. He um, didn't that day. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Do you think Reagan was so unique that really he's one of the few people who could have pulled this off? I mean, his communication skills, his, his, his principles, he, he really was driven to, uh, to take out the Soviet Union one way or another really throughout his life and you know they people called him obviously the great communicator and he he always said i wasn't a great communicator but i communicated great things and you know he didn't just communicate he kind of talked to people when he gave addresses or over the radio or television he he liked listeners uh, to think that they were hanging out in the barbershop or in in a living room and he he would say i write for the ear the surprising thing that that i found over the research and and again interviews and nuggets and oral histories that really hadn't been explored uh was that how much he was an active participant in writing you know he we obviously knew about his diaries and all the writings he did but he was really active in these speeches as well uh, much like eisenhower was and he was often advised not to do what he wanted to do, especially in foreign <laughs> policy, to cut these deals, make nice and these other things. And yet he plowed ahead pretty much. I don't mean he was a bull in the china shop. He was very thoughtful about the way he did it. But he knew what he wanted to do, correct? Exactly. You know, he was giving these speeches early in in his presidency uh, where he's calling – you know, uh, communism is going to end up on the ash heap of history, and the Soviet empire is the evil empire. And at the time, people were saying, easy, this is too inflammatory. It's going to ruin negotiations. You're going to start nuclear war. And then the Berlin moment happens, the Brandenburg Gate speech. And he says again and again and again that he's, he's thinking about saying this. And speechwriters and the State Department and people in the White House are saying, do not say, tear down this wall. It's way over the top. And they took it out six times. And he's driving in the limo with an aide. And he turns to the aide and he says, you know, the boys at State are going to kill me, but it's the right thing to do. And he adds back in tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev, which obviously became the most iconic speech in recent history. You know, I don't want to put you on the spot, and I just want to tell my audience, this is really a fascinating book. It is a thorough book, and yet it really is comprehensible. And I, you know, I worked for Reagan, I know all about Reagan, and I learned a lot of new things in this book. Let me ask you this. In terms of, not so much personality, but in terms of sort of adhering to a viewpoint and trying to figure out how to get to the position you want to get to. Do you see many similarities between this president and the current president? Here's what I see, and I write about this in the book, in the last word. I see that they're, they are facing real challenges that are very similar. Challenges that, you know, the threat of nuclear war. Um, and they are both, they were both saying and are saying things that are very aggressive, setting the table. And 
and people's heads are exploding in Washington. They were with Reagan. They are with President Trump. Now, he does it differently, and there's Twitter and everything else. They are different personalities. But here's what is similar. They changed the paradigm. They changed the entire way Washington focused. And in retrospect, now looking back at Reagan, uh, I think he's much more appreciated now. Brett Baer, I'd like to hold you over a few minutes. You want him to stay? Yeah. We'll be right back. Great book, Three Days in Moscow. Be right back. Show where we create the talking points. Call in now, 877 381 3811. You know, folks, uh, in the past few weeks, we've seen an uptick in natural disasters, tornadoes in Alabama. Uh, you know, you've seen the volcano erupting in Hawaii after weeks of heavy earthquake activity, more earthquakes off the coast of Oregon, three and four days. No matter where you live, disasters like these are the reason every American needs to prepare. The truth is you are the best first responder. The alternative, wait for FEMA to show up. Well, I think the choice is clear. This is the day to build your emergency food supply. Get this special double offer from my friends at My Patriot Supply. Buy a two-week emergency food kit and get one free. Two for one. Buy one, get one free. Call 800-294-2325. Or order online at preparewithmark.com. Now, these foods last up to 25 years in storage. Both two-week emergency food kits are shipped free discreetly to your home. Supplies of this buy one, get one are limited. 800-294-2325 or preparewithmark.com. 800-294-2325 or preparewithmark.com. Brett Baer, the great book is Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan, and the Fall of the Soviet Empire. It's broader than that, the book. It provides an enormous amount of context. But Brett really does focus in on this speech and these events as the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. Isn't it also true, Brett Baer, that Reagan had some very, very important partners? John Paul II, Margaret Thatcher, Herbert Cole, Helmut Kohl, rather. And it was really this, this group... Uh, coordinated in some respects, not coordinating in other respects, that work together to bring this outcome, no? That's exactly right. And you can see how far up, up I am. I'm, I'm just chatting away into the commercial break. Sorry about that. But uh, I agree. It was, a, it was a combination of things and people. You know, Reagan had a, a great relationship with uh, Pope John Paul II. The two men um, had what Reagan called the distinction of suffering assassination attempts only six weeks apart. Mm-hmm. And they met and they, they said to each other that they thought God had spared them both because he needed them to do his work in the world. Uh, he had a great relationship with Margaret Thatcher, who, by the way, was the person who signaled him that Mikhail Gorbachev was probably somebody that he could deal with. And um, and obviously the situation in Poland, uh, you you had the, the revolution and Reagan's full support after he goes there, like Valenza says, you know, they start singing to him. And he says, what are they singing? And, and he asked him and, and he said, they're singing, may you li- live 100 years. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a combination of people. And he almost did. Clearly had it. Yeah. Do you think... 
given the kind of environment we have these days, quite frankly, in the media and the Democrat Party, <clears throat> but also some of the Republican Party, do you think it's possible to elect another Reagan? You know, it may be a different time, Mark. With social media and the uh, partisanship, it's it's been partisan before. Reagan had really tough media, but it doesn't seem like it's at this uh, this stage. Um, and uh, I think that um, it would have to be a different kind of, of leader. But there are people, I think the hunger for reading about uh, leaders like Eisenhower and Reagan is because uh, people are, are hungry for that. Well, and, what do you, uh, what do you say to people? who say, okay, great, stop bringing up Reagan already. And I say to myself, don't you want to learn about great people who did great things? I mean, this is history, right? Right. And listen, there are, there are nuggets that, that are effective, as we just talked about today, with this summit pending potentially in Singapore on June 12th. By the way, June 12th is the date, June 12th, 1987, of that Brandenburg Gate speech, Tear Down This Wall. I don't think they planned that. I don't know if they're that good, yeah. but uh, it, it, it's synergy. Tear down these nukes. By the way, uh, do you think uh, the current White House can learn from the way Reagan conducted himself and his dealings with the Soviet Union? I do. I actually really do. And I think that, um, you know, I interviewed Secretary Schultz for this book, who, by the way, at 93 is like mm -hmm. uh, he can remember meetings like they were yesterday. Amazing. And And he kind of laid out Reagan's Reagan's deal for these summits and I think I think there are lessons in there number one you got to be realistic you got you have to know what you want don't start thinking about what other people want because you'll be negotiating with yourself just what you want and then when you have all that straight sit down and negotiate uh, knowing that you have the hand that you're going to play and be willing to get up from the table like Reagan did in Reykjavik over uh, the strategic defense initiative well, Brett Baer, let me tell you, we can barely touch this book, I mean, uh, in the time I have here, but I, I want to congratulate you. It's another marvelous book, Three Days in Moscow, Ronald Reagan and the Fall of the Soviet Union. I want to strongly encourage my Levinites, you need to get a copy of this. You think you know everything about Reagan, you probably don't, but particularly the key aspects and bringing out the Soviet Union and how that relates to, uh, to today. And Brett Baer, I want to thank you very much for doing the job of a real journalist. I love watching you when I can. Of course, you're on when I'm on, but I do watch you during my breaks. So uh, I appreciate it very, very much. Well, thanks for having me on. And I'm still trying to get you on, and we're going to work that out. <laughs> we'll work it out. God bless you, right. my friend. We'll Take see care. You. It's really a good book. And it's up on Mark Levin Show, Facebook, Mark Levin Show, Twitter. You can get it at Amazon directly, any major bookstore. Um, you learn a lot from this book. It's not one of these fictions that are that's dressed up as a nonfiction. It's a real book with real research, and he's got an enormous amount of notes and footnotes and everything, so you can go back and look at the originals. I know he spent a lot of time at the Reagan Library and so forth, and he was the driving force behind this. But it shows a truly successful president and what he did, why he was successful. We can learn a lot from it. So I'm very... Uh, Honored that Brett asked me to do a blurb, which I was happy to do, and he came on the program. And, uh, you know, he's a reliably honest and professional journalist. And you know what else he is? He's a brilliant historian and author. And this is a comprehensive and wonderfully written exposition of Reagan's lifelong mission to spread liberty and end the Soviet Union. That's what it is. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful gift, too. So I hope you'll check it out. Now, let me get back, because we're running out of time. I could do that. I would need 10 hours to do today's show. 
And I, and I haven't had any sleep. I got back from Israel 11 o'clock in the morning. I don't even know what the hell time zone I'm in. doesn't matter. This CNN piece tells you everything you need to know about my position from day one. You can't indict a sitting president. You can't. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein publicly discussed the issue earlier this month in an event held by the Freedom Foreign Institute. He was asked if a sitting president can be indicted. He said, I'm not going to answer this in the context of any current matters, so you shouldn't draw any inference about it. But the Department of Justice has in the past, when the issue arose, has opined that a sitting president cannot be indicted. There's been a lot of speculation in the media about this. I just don't have anything more to say about it. Rosenstein oversees the special counsel probe. I needed to get this issue into the body politic and into the media. And you can see we succeeded, you and I. Tomorrow you'll hear the backbenchers talk about the New York Times article like parrots. Tomorrow you'll hear them say, like I've always said, you can't indict a sitting president. They never said anything. And also somebody talking off the record, obviously involved in the president's representation, said, hey, look, this also relates to any subpoena to testify. I've made that point over and over again, too. If you're going to subpoena president, it better be a big deal. And it better relate to the matters that relate to the president. Not to somebody else. And not to efforts that, oh, dude, why did you fire Comey? And why why were you opposed to my hiring? Those are not legitimate questions. When you're subpoenaing a president to ask questions, that's not legitimate. So uh, it would appear that the president's legal team is embracing our position. And I think it's the only position that can ultimately work because it's a constitutional position. And it's been the position of the United States Department of Justice. Rosenstein had to admit it just a few weeks ago. That's why all this other talk, all the static, all the lawyers, the conga line, on and on, and this, and one trying to sound smarter than the other. It's much simpler than all that. It's much simpler than all that. That's not to say that it's an easy road. I mean, they'll, they'll be fought either way. But the Constitution is on the president's side. Department of Justice policy is on the president's side. And so uh, I just hope that Rudy's conveyance of this information is accurate. But even if it's not, that's the position the president's lawyers and the president must take, as I've said over and over and over again. And I'm scheduled to appear on Hannity tomorrow night at 9.30 at his request again. So we'll see. Now, I don't have a lot of time left. But I want to get back to this issue I discussed yesterday. This has been a full program. I want to get back to the issue I discussed yesterday. The media in this country. The media in this country are anti-American and pro-America's enemies. In every single case I can think of, The media come to the defense of our enemies and attack our president. And in essence, attack our country. Because he represents our country, certainly when it comes to the issue of foreign policy. I told you 11 a.m. I got home last night from Israel. I must have been traveling 20 hours with the flights, and then I had to get a connection and on and on and on. And during the connection in Boston, I'm looking at my iPhone and I'm reading these headlines about what CNN is saying and ABC and CBS and NBC and MSNBC. 
all the same thing. That the Israelis are killing innocent children and women. That the poor Palestinians and the Gaza Strip are unarmed and they're being essentially executed by the Israelis. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's about as sick as it gets, that kind of phony reporting. And then I made the case that these reporters and these networks, these corporations, have blood on their hands. Because Hamas wants this kind of response. This is why they put women and children first. They don't care about life. They're terrorists for crying out loud. I'm not going to do the same show I did yesterday. There's not enough time for it anyway, but I hope you'll go back and listen. It's all over the Internet. It went viral, what I said, that these reporters have blood on their hands, and they do. They give aid and comfort to Hamas. They give aid and comfort to the Taliban. They give aid and comfort to the regime in Tehran. They give aid and comfort to the Russians and the Chinese and the Cubans and all the rest. God forbid the Israelis have their capital in Jerusalem. 3,500 years ago, that was their place. God forbid that the United States recognizes it, even though in 1995 we passed a law that said we recognize it and we're going to move our embassy there. 93 to 5 in the United States Senate. Underscored again in June of last year, 90 to 0. And not a single Democrat is criticized for the vote. Not a single elected Democrat attended the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. Because they've thrown in with Hamas. Mark, what do you mean? Did you hear Bernie Sanders? He's a disgrace. These are not compassionate people in the media and the Democrats. And then we learn that one of the leaders of Hamas, one of the terrorist leaders, brags that 50 of the 62 people killed were Hamas terrorist members. Looks like the Israeli snipers knew what they were doing. He's bragging. No, 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 no. Our soldiers, our terrorists, they fought and died bravely. 50 out of 62. Then another one of the leaders of Hamas, a terrorist group, had to correct somebody when they said, well, these protests, these are non He said, no, they're not nonviolent protests. This is an armed revolt. An armed revolt. Violence. Did you hear an apology from Andre Mitchell today? Did you hear an apology from Jake Tapper today? Did you hear an apology from the morning schmo and Mrs. Schmo today? No, the media never correct themselves in any serious or substantive way. They are the propagandists for Hamas and Fatah. They are the propagandists for the Taliban and the Iranian regime. They are the propagandists for the Cuban regime. And remember, the North Korean generals love the morning schmo. That's their favorite show. I think I figured out why, Mr. Producer. They find Joe Scarborough very, very attractive. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, I've had my 
I shared mechanics calling me saying they found something wrong that needs replacing when I've taken my car in for an oil change, haven't you? Those surprise high repair bills are terrible, especially when you're not covered by a manufacturer's warranty and you're paying out of your own pocket to fix them. That's why I strongly recommend extended vehicle protection from CarShield. If your car is 5,000 to 150,000 miles, CarShield can save you from paying for high repair bills. Replacing your engine or even a simple sensor can cost thousands. When you're protected by CarShield, you can have your favorite mechanic or dealership fix your car. It's your choice. CarShield also provides 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed for free. Get covered by the ultimate, the ultimate in extended vehicle protection. Get CarShield. I have it on our 2010 Camaro, and I'm glad we do. Call 800-CAR-6100. Mention code LEVIN. 800-CAR-6100, code LEVIN. Or visit carshield.com and use code LEVIN, L-E-V-I-N. That's carshield.com, code LEVIN. Either way, you'll save 10%. That's carshield.com or 800-CAR-6100. Use code LEVIN, save 10%. You know, you want to grab it now so you don't look back and say, oh, well, no, no, now's the time. A deductible may apply. Well, that's been a hell of a three hours, quite frankly. We've had a lot to go through, and much of it is enormously troubling. The secret little FBI cabal, a group of five or less FBI agents who took it upon themselves to try and take out Donald Trump, absolutely shocking. And if you're just tuning in, I hope you'll listen to the first hour of the program and the second hour of the program. We will have it posted, as we always do in our archives, on Mark Levin Show website. That's marklevinshow.com, our official radio website. You can download it, podcast it, and I hope you'll share it with individuals. Or you can listen to the shows tomorrow. You'll hear them repeat it, quite frankly. Also, the revelation by uh, Rudy Giuliani, which I hope is correct, that just two weeks ago they mentioned to the Mueller team that you whether it's their position on indicting a sitting president. And eventually, apparently, they reveal that uh, they agree that they cannot circumvent Department of Justice policy, which is that you cannot indict a sitting president. And, of course, you heard that here first. So you'll hear the radio shows tomorrow talk about that, too, and pat themselves on the back. I cannot tell you how honored I am to have you in my audience because you're the smartest audience in radio. You're the smartest audience in broadcasting. This is the toughest time period in radio. 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific. But particularly on the East Coast and in the Midwest, Central Time. It's the toughest radio slot because there's so much going on. The basketball playoffs, hockey playoffs, baseball, most of the local stations, because they want to say live and local, will promote all the sports even though they don't run them. You are here because you want to be here. And I want to thank you. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to be with you and share your lives with you. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Don't miss tomorrow, folks. I'll be right here. Check out Levin TV. It's very powerful tonight. 844-LEVIN-TV. And I'll see you tomorrow. God bless. God bless.